We've come to the very end of the book of Acts. We're going to be reading the last verses of chapter 28, and I'd like to start off this morning by reading that together with you from Acts 28, starting at verse 11. If you have a Bible, feel free to open, otherwise it should appear on the wall or on your screen. You remember last week we talked about the couple of week journey that Paul made uh, on ship through the Mediterranean storm and shipwreck, ending up on the island of Malta where they were received with great hospitality. And uh, they spent the winter there because in the Mediterranean the winter is not a good time to sail, so they just waited along with other ships who were obviously there and then uh, took off in their last leg of their journey to Rome. So we'll read Acts 28, starting at verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar." though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great, greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have they have closed." lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, 
proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ without, with all boldness and without hindrance. The book of Acts seems to end quite quietly. I wouldn't say exactly it ends with a whimper, but it just kind of closes down. There's no bombast about how the kingdom of God vanquished the Roman Empire. There are no stories about evangelical success. There are no graphs of growth percentages. There's no spreadsheets about book sales or television appearances or attendance at conferences in, 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 in huge stadiums or the Colosseum. There's no newspaper columns or podcasts about success in appointing judges, reversing unchristian laws, or electing officials who will fight for us. There's no marches for their rights or their freedoms. There's no political party. There's no talk radio. There's no television network that represents our side of the story. There's no expressed fear about being marginalized, persecuted, or imprisoned. No attempts to avoid that by influencing the Roman government. In fact, the early church seemed to welcome being marginalized, imprisoned, or killed as a sign that they were actually really following Jesus. It just kind of quietly fades away with no ending that wraps everything up or tells us triumphantly, triumphantly how everything actually did work out for the best in the end. It's like it demands a sequel that isn't there. And so I struggled a lot this week. What, what's there to say about, about this? There's, there's nothing that, that, that really grabs you. And so I'd just like to share a few thoughts, and this is just concluding from the from this whole series that we've had on Acts. They're mostly of review, probably nothing new, but just to remind us of where we've been in the book and then hopefully move us, as we go into communion in a few minutes, move us ahead out into our lives. The first thing I'd like to note with you is this, and maybe maybe you missed it or maybe you didn't, but in the very first verse we read, verse 11, Luke writes, After three months we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, and this, this is the point, with the twin gods as figureheads. Did you notice that? Have you ever realized that that was there before? In a couple of the commentaries I read, the commentators actually said, these words are, I think one of them used the term useless. They, they, why is that in there? Now, in my mind, that's a direct contradiction of 1 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is useful and profitable. But, but that aside, these twin gods were the gods Castor and Pollux, whom you may remember as the two stars, the twins, in the constellation Gemini. These were semi-divine sons of the great god Zeus. They were patrons of the Roman knights, but more especially, 
They protected humans in danger during war times and at sea. They were the patron gods of the sailors. And on this ship that sailed from Alexandria were as figureheads these two gods of the Roman Empire. And I I couldn't find a ship that had those as figureheads, but you can see in this old etching, which actually is from the Middle Ages, by the way, but you can see the names Castor and Pollux there. Okay? In his commentary on Revelation, J. Nelson Craybill writes this, A visit to the landfill of ancient Rome confirms that the great city once lived luxuriously. Even the philosopher Seneca, who was a counselor to the Roman Emperor Nero, was appalled by the appetite of Rome. He wondered if nature gave Romans such insatiable bellies that they should outdo, and I quote, outdo the hugest and most voracious animals in greed. Seneca cursed, and I quote, the wretches whose luxury overleaps the bounds of an empire that already stirs too much envy. Why do you launch your ships, he demanded? Why do you pile riches on riches? He lamented that an exhibition all too lavish is made of the spoils of conquered nations. From his island vantage point at Patmos, along a shipping lane, the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, could watch these raw materials, these luxury items, these slaves and food supplies stream across the Mediterranean from all parts of the world toward Italy and toward Rome. These figureheads, these gods, Castor and Pollux, were symbols of empire with all of, its, all of its wealth and all of its consumerism and all of its over-the-top appetite and all of its over-the-top riches and all of its over-the-top power and its ability to, and, and capability and desire to enslave. And this week, my friend John Elwood referred me, reminded me, and I remember this because a few, a, a couple years ago we had a series on Revelation, of Revelation 18, which talks about Rome finally being destroyed, empire finally being destroyed. The smoke is rising to the sky. And John writes this, For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. So these men sailing these ships now, participating in empire in its worst forms, are now weeping. These shipmasters and seafaring men, the sailors, What city was like the great city, they say, and they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. 
So right at the end of this book of Acts, in just a little couple of words that a couple modern commentaries call worthless, they shouldn't even be there, they're just taking up space. Luke, for the discerning reader, builds this whole, and helps you enter into this whole image of empire, of wealth, of luxury, of consumerism, of racism, materialism, militarism. And just reminds us that this is the context of Acts. And that it is going to fall. It will not survive. And then we move on. Paul is in Rome. And I find it fascinating that there's just a very little brief mention of, of the, they use the word in Acts 28, the word brothers, of Christians of Rome. But there's just one little mention of these Christians, and it's like they don't know who Paul is. But actually, Paul has probably already written them the letter of the Romans, to the Romans. So I don't know how all that fits together. But anyway, there's just a little mention of these Christians, and then Luke goes into this, what, this longer description of Paul interacting with the Jews, as he does everywhere he goes. And he interacts with them, and he talks to them about the kingdom, and he talks to them about Christ. And then he says to them words that are quoted from Isaiah 6. If you remember Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6 is this great story of Isaiah the prophet. And he sees this vision in the year that King Uzziah died. He sees this vision of God on his throne with the temple full of its train and the smoke and the angels worshiping. And Isaiah looks up and the only thing he can say is, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. And God sends an angel with a coal. And that coal touches his lips and chars his lips. And cleanses him. And then God says, who will go? And now I'm quoting this passage correctly in its right context. Who will go? And Isaiah says, I will go. Send me. And then God says exactly what Paul says here in, in 28, Go to this people and say, You will hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So in this last chapter of, of Acts, Luke puts on the table again what we've seen all through Acts is this Jewish nationalism. This idea that we are a special people called by God, instituted by God, with a special mission in the world to bring our values, our norms, what we have as good to the world. To the extent, and to, in a certain degree, that was all correct. That's what God had done. But what Jewish nationalism did was it began to believe 
that only they were chosen and no other people was. No other people were. And so they began to cut out people and leave people outside. And the whole book of Acts, really the whole New Testament, is a fight against this kind of nationalism. It's a fight against this kind of exclusivity. That we're some kind of special, exceptional people. And Paul has tried through this whole book and all his missionary journeys at every city to say to the Jews, you've got to see things differently. You've got to understand differently. You've got to listen. You've got to see. You've got to hear. You've got to understand. And this statement of Paul's is not, I don't think, one of anger or one of wrath. It's the anguish of a lover. It's the pain of seeing, of, of, of seeing someone that you love. In this case, it's God's pain. Seeing someone that you love closing themselves off from the purpose for which God has made them. And so Paul asked these questions of the Jews. Have your hearts grown dull? Are you not able to hear? Are you not able to see? Are you not able to understand with your hearts? And the same question comes to us. And I've been asking it all through this series. Are we able to see? Are we able to hear? Are we able to understand with our hearts? Are we able to look honestly at the empire of which we are a part? Are we able to hear the voices of the marginalized? the indigenous peoples, the African Americans, the people of color, the elderly, those with disabilities, those with mental illnesses and neurodiversities, the LGBTQ community, refugees, evacuees, children in the foster care system, the abused, physical, emotional, sexual. Are we able to listen Are we able to hear the groaning of creation? And if you haven't heard it this week, then your ears are really closed. The fires, the storms, the droughts, the extractive economy of which we are so much a part, the extinction of species, the destruction of forests, fish, and coral, the misuse of the land, our inclination toward violence, I heard on talk radio uh, this week someone commenting on Afghanistan and suggesting that the most important thing we as the United States could now do after Afghanistan is make sure that we sell to Taiwan all the arms that they want and send 250 tanks to Poland. That was his solution. Are we able to listen and to hear and to understand? 
that next to all the wonderful good things that we experience in our Western culture, there's this whole stream of other stuff that we need to reckon with. Or are we going to close our eyes and divert and just keep insisting it's great and we're okay? And God, through the passage in Isaiah and through Paul and in all other kinds of places in the New Testament, calls us to turn and, did you notice this word, be healed. And I think of this healing just just covering everything and dripping through every part of the world. All of our relationships with each other, our relationships with the creation, our relationships with the world in which we find ourselves, with our professions, that there's this healing occurs. But it can only occur if we do what happened in the book of Acts, go into our workplaces, into the places where God has sent us, sent us, and remember we always saw this, subversively overturn the order of empire. And then the last thing I want to note is the calling to hospitality and community. We read this already in Acts 28, 15. The brothers in, in Rome, when they heard about us, Paul and, his, and Luke and the rest of the group coming, they came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Willie James Jennings says this, Paul is in need of such community. There is a tenderness exposed in these verses that shows us Paul's humanity and our own. There is a loneliness born of trial that attaches itself to body and mind and presses us toward despair. Did you get that? There's a loneliness born of trial. Paul was a man of trial that attaches itself to body and mind and presses us to turn toward despair. It's not a coincidence that Paul takes, that Luke takes us from the hospitality on Malta to the hospitality in Rome, from a foreign space to a familiar one, from Gentiles who show kindness and believers who do the same because Paul needed this community. And then the very last, second to last verse, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. So this book of Acts ends, you remember the title of our series is God's Community in the Midst of Empire. And this is how the book of Acts ends, with his community, with Paul in this home, welcoming all, spreading a table, Anyone who comes in is welcome. It doesn't matter who you are. From the lowliest slave, from the most marginal person, to the emperor if he wanted to come. All were welcome at this community, at this table of Paul. So here you see, just kind of in a, in a subtle or maybe not so subtle way, in this last section of Acts, these three themes. You see them? Empire, Castor and Pollux. Jewish nationalism, open your ears, open your eyes, and community. We're together. The table is open for all. No one is kept out. Everyone 
is welcome into this community. Because if you're going to survive in empire, you need community. You cannot do it alone. And then, and this is the conclusion, twice, you remember, I think way back in the beginning, the first or second week on Acts, I commented that the words kingdom of God don't appear that much in Acts. Jesus talks about it all the time, but Luke hardly mentioned it. I think it appears, the word kingdom only appears a handful of times. In this section that we just read, it appears twice. In verse 31, the last verse, Paul, as he welcomed into his house, proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And then earlier in verse, uh, in verse 23, it says the same thing, that the Jews who came, who came to, um, to his lodging heard him expounding to them, and I quote, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So Paul taught about the kingdom of God and Jesus, who is the new king. The kingdom of God versus empire. The kingdom of God versus Rome. And do not underestimate the political nature of this statement the kingdom of God. This was political. This was uh, revolutionary. The kingdom of God and then pivoting around and notice what Luke does here. He uses the three titles of Jesus. The Lord which was Direct opposite of Caesar. Caesar was Lord. Jesus is Lord. So, Paul, so Luke's throwing up those politics in there. The, that empire language in there. Jesus, which means Savior. Remember the angel came to Mary and said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This, this Aramaic term, this Hebrew term, Jesus, goes deep back into Jewish roots. And then Christ, which is the Greek word for the anointed one. It's the same as the Hebrew word Messiah. Everything pivots on and focuses on and turns on this Lord Jesus Christ. The one who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself, even to death on a cross. The one who is highly exalted, Philippians 2, with the name that is above every name, including that of Caesar. The one who assures us in Matthew 11 that he is gentle and lowly of heart, who grants us rest, whose yoke is easy, and whose burden is light. The one who, according to Colossians 1, through whom God is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, healing by the blood of his cross. Christianity 
real Christianity, looks like Jesus. Christians are to be like Jesus. Christianity means following Jesus in how we live, in how we talk, in how we act, in how we love. And just this week, a tweet came across my screen, and I quote, Jesus was the most powerful person to walk the earth. He didn't build an empire. He didn't spin the truth. And he had no insecure mechanism of self-protection. With all that power, he washed feet. He served others with the gift of his presence. Now at the beginning I said that this end of Acts demands a sequel. Well, the sequel's right here, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) You're it. Those of you here in the building and those of you watching on Zoom and those of you listening later, you are it. And the church has been it for 2,000 years. And the church has done some great things. And the church has done some really awful things. And we need to to hold both of those things up to the light and open our ears and minds and eyes and hearts and understand. And then take upon ourselves the likeness of Christ, this one who emptied himself, who served, who went all the way to death in order to love the world that God made and loved so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we might live and not die. And there is in these years in which we live right now, probably for the first time since World War II, and I don't think any of us here experienced World War II, there is death in our, in our world, the world in which we live. And I keep saying this, in, in ways that none of us have ever experienced, there is death. And the only person who comes with life, who himself died and rose again, calls us to turn from empire, to turn from deadly individualism, and to follow him into the mess of the world, welcoming all who will come to our table, if we're willing to set the table. And Jesus goes before us by setting us this table. So as we come to communion this morning, I really want to invite you to come to Christ as we conclude this series on Acts. To come to Christ. To ask Him to open up your eyes, to open up your ears, to open up your hearts. To ask Him to...
teach you what you need to learn, to show you new things, to draw you closer to Him. And then to be fed at this table. Then to go out and to serve and to love like Jesus did, like Paul did, like so many Christians throughout the ages have done. So that this world can be healed.